from my study anyway, um, what the Lord was saying to us as a church, where the Lord may be leading us. And I think I learned many things actually. It was very fruitful. I'm very grateful to you for releasing me for that time. Uh, One of the things that I came back convinced of that uh, most of you have heard uh, now is that we needed to refine, renew our vision as a church. Peter Lever tells me the last one was written 18 years ago um, and uh, uh, it, it served us, particularly in the early years of his life, it served us well. But the church has changed and developed. I think our understanding as a church has matured as well. Certainly mine has. Um, and uh, uh, it's time to, 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 to reformulate and renew our vision as a church. And over this year, there will be a number of Sundays, particularly where we're talking about uh, that, but uh, hopefully as well, in all sorts of other ways, we will be refining and developing um, a particular statement and set of convictions about what the Lord has called us to. We began to look at that actually, if you were here in late July when I returned, I preached a couple of sermons on Isaiah 60 and uh, um, for our rededication Sunday, I just wanted to... to, uh, spend a little while looking in the New Testament at this uh, one passage in particular in the New Testament which actually draws on a lot of the imagery and ideas that there are in Isaiah 60 and all sorts of other places in the Bible and, um, and yet gives, the, gives it a particular New Testament flavour. So that's why we're looking at these two verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses Four to six. In a very vivid way, they summarise what God does in making a person a Christian. And therefore, in many senses, they summarise why we as Christians are here. We are here, says the Bible to see the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Uh, The Apostle Paul says that Satan, he provocatively calls him the God of this age because... For many, many people, he rules their lives. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded people. They cannot see the light. That, according to the Bible, is one of the ways the Bible defines what it means to be a non-Christian, to be someone who doesn't belong to God, doesn't belong to Christ. It actually doesn't mean that they don't know know facts about Jesus and the Bible. They may believe that Jesus existed. They may be incredibly impressed with churches or one local local church. They may really want to be a part of that church. They may be sitting here this morning for, for that reason. They may know their Bibles backwards. 
But in a profound way, they haven't yet seen. The precise word that Paul uses there when he says they can't see is um, a word that, that, that conveys some very interesting uh, uh, nuances. It's a word that's often associated with the dawn. And we have a, an English idiom which, which is very uh, similar and I think really helps us to, to, to understand what Paul is saying. We could translate it, it hasn't yet dawned on them. No, there may be all sorts of facts that they've picked up, all sorts of things that they've noticed, all sorts of um, ways in which they're starting to accrete an understanding and habits and so on of Christians. But the key hasn't yet penetrated their hearts. It hasn't yet dawned on them. And says Paul very clearly, only God can help us to see. Only God can make the sun rise in our hearts. Did you see verse 6 there? God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul's using an incredibly vivid picture here. He takes us back to the creation story, back in Genesis 1. And uh, if you read that there, uh, Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, darkness covered the earth. And then, says the writer of Genesis 1, God spoke. God said just four words. Let there be light. And there was light. God created light out of darkness simply by his word. You know, our modern understanding um, of the, the universe helps us to see more deeply the extraordinary truth of that. You know, we now know that up there there are billions upon billions of stars stretched stretched out over expanses of space of, of, of billions of light years. The Hubble Space Tele uh, Telescope has, uh, has uh, photographed whole, whole skeins of galaxies that, uh, where each galaxy at first looks no bigger than a star and yet we know it is a whole galaxy and they look like, look like sort of great gossamer scarves stretched across one tiny little corner of the universe. And we know that actually for the light to travel just from one end to the other of that little skein of galaxies itself takes thousands, even millions of years. So great is the universe. And all of that was spoken into existence by God. Scientists still know that it is a mystery how the universe began. And no doubt many things that they will find out in terms of mechanism as to how the universe has become the way it is today. But God's people have known for thousands of years that the ultimate answer doesn't lie in physics. It lies in a person 
who said, let there be light. And it was so. Now that power, says Paul, that power that we're told about right at the beginning of the Bible, in one sense we can witness every night as we look at the stars, every day as we enjoy the sunshine, that power is now exercised by God in a different way to open the eyes of our hearts, to shine light in our hearts. The Bible insists God is absolutely sovereign in that. He does that. We cannot do it. No one stood alongside him and gave him some advice about how he might create the universe and, uh, and uh, make it look a little bit better than it, than it was. He stood alone and he decided. And nobody stands alongside God and decides whom, whom he is going to illuminate in their hearts, whom he is going to help to see. He does that. He stands absolutely sovereign and alone in that. And he says, let there be light. Let there be light. Let there be light. Let there be light. God who said, who made light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. That's my prayer. It's so vital, so central to us in, in uh, our church. When, if, you get the, if you haven't already, you get the opportunity to, to read the statements of, of, of the church we want to be. We have said at the head of every one of them that we are prayerfully committed to those things. And that's not just a sort of um, um, uh, evangelical uh, bit of window dressing to make it sound a little better. We want that to be absolutely clear in our hearts as an overarching statement. Unless God does something amongst us, we can do nothing. He is the sovereign God. I've been so excited in our life in the, in the last six months or so to see the Thursday morning prayer meeting um, get, get going now. It is absolutely precious. I, I hope that all of home groups will make it a primary purpose of their meeting together. That they are taking prayer seriously, prayer for one another, that just cannot happen in the, in, in the bigger group, about the details and the depths of our lives. Prayer for the whole life of the church, prayer for this world that so needs to know God. Without prayer, nothing happens. And as we pray, you see, we are acknowledging before the Lord. You are in charge. You are sovereign. You shine light. We are here to see. But uh, the Apostle expands that. We are here to see, he says, the glory <coughs> of Christ, which is the glory of God. Now let me explain that to you. Twice Paul describes what we see, verses 4 and 6. First of all, in verse 4, 
he says of people who can't see, he says they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And then uh, in verse 6 he says, um, God gives us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Those are two descriptions of the same thing. And in, the fir- in both cases, the first thing we see is we see uh, what he describes in verse 6 as the face of Christ. Both um, um, in verse 4, he says we see the glory of Christ. Do you see that? So in both of those, uh, those uh, sentences, he says what we see, first of all, is Christ. But then he says, through seeing Christ, we see God. In verse 4, you see, he says we see the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So that, uh, so that um, somehow as we read the Bible, as we read the New Testament, as we read the Gospels in particular, as we, as we see the record of Jesus' life, God displays to us Jesus. And he lets that, that picture penetrate our hearts so that we see that Jesus is glorious. And then he adds the bombshell. And then he says, and he's the image of God. So this Jesus, who you have been attracted to, who you have seen, is actually the supreme way that God reveals himself to you. Or in verse 6, he puts it in that other way, uh, doesn't he? he see, we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. So in other words, uh, 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 again he's saying, as Christ is portrayed to you, so that you see his face, so actually in his face, we see the glory of God. It's all over the place in the, in the New Testament. The writer to the Hebrews says, says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's being. When um, Jesus' disciple Philip in John's Gospel said, show us the Father, show us God, Jesus turned to him and said, don't you know me, Philip? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. God shows us to himself, shows himself to, to us, God reveals himself through Jesus. In one sense, God is absolutely unknowable. He is infinitely high. He is exalted. His thoughts are far beyond our thoughts. How could we possibly hope to know that God, who is so powerful that simply through his word he created galaxies and, and, and skeins of galaxies? But in another sense, God is absolutely knowable because God has given us the best possible representation of himself that he could ever give us this side of eternity. 
He's given us Jesus. To see Jesus, to see the glory of Jesus, is to see the image of God. To see the face of Jesus is to see the glory of God. And actually, though we can learn things, though we can see, uh, see things in one sense, as we read the Bible, as someone explains the Bible uh, to us, we will not see with our hearts unless God opens our hearts, unless God shines that light down into our hearts. And we say, this is glorious. I've seen glory here. I wonder what you think of when, uh, when you read the word glory. Very important for us to understand, isn't it, where, what, what God is doing us. What, 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 what does glory evoke in our hearts? In the Bible, when the glory of God appears, very often the primary response is one of awe or sometimes terror. Psalm 29 is a wonderful psalm. It is, um, in one sense, a, a description of a terrifying thunderstorm. The, 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 the lightning is coming down, the great thunderclaps are, are, are echoing around, and the psalmist describes this as the voice of God. The voice of the Lord, he says, strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists oaks and strips forests bare. And in his temple all cry, Glory! In other words, you see, he's imagining a thunderstorm happening around the temple and the worshippers are up there approaching the Holy of Holies where God symbolically dwells, where the glory of God symbolically dwells and they suddenly turn around and they say, no, out there is glory. Terrifying, awesome power. But there is a sense of attraction about the glory of God as well. I mean, perhaps you just feel terror when you see a thunderstorm. I have to say, I don't. I just find my heart drawn towards, in, in, in awe, but, it, but in an incredibly uplifting way towards those, that, that manifestation of power. And sometimes in the, in the Bible, when the glory of God is being, is being described, the, the overwhelming emotion that it's des- describing in, in, in response, I think, is not so much terror as actually wonder at beauty. Psalm 19, for instance, says, The heavens declare the glory of God. I don't know whether you saw the uh, sunset last night, did you? We debated it, we decided the colours were peach and nectarine, green, aquamarine and blue at least. But a few stars just starting to come out. Glory, says the Bible. Beautiful, awe-inspiring, 
expanse of glory is the sky. And those two elements of, of fear and wonder and delight become uh, very much moulded together when the New Testament starts to, to describe the glory of Jesus. John's Gospel does it in a, in, a, in a beautiful and vivid way. So much of John's Gospel is about the glory of Jesus. And as the story unfo- uh, begins to unfold in, uh, in John's Gospel, the first big thing that Jesus does is at the wedding of Cana, he turns water into wine. And um, uh, John tells us quite uh, explicitly that this, <coughs> this was the first of his signs by which he displayed his glory. So we are introduced to Jesus as someone who takes mere sustenance of water and turns it into something uh, rich and wonderful and joyful and pleasurable. Why? And then Jesus goes on in the story, revealing his glory as he heals people, as he feeds 5,000, as he significantly opens the eyes of a blind uh, person. And then finally in John chapter 11, there is a big story in which his friend Lazarus dies and then Jesus brings him to life again. And again, Jesus here says to Martha, you will see in this the glory of God. Glory in turning water into wine. Glory in raising a dead person to life. But then there's something even more extraordinary that happens in John's Gospel because just in the next chapter a group of Greeks uh, uh, turn up who want to see Jesus. Maybe very significant for uh, what we're talking about, about seeing. Uh, We want to see Jesus. And Jesus says in response, well, now is the time for me to be glorified. In other words, they haven't really seen me yet. haven't really seen my glory. Water into wine, dead people rising to life. Now, it's not really shown my glory yet. This is how I'm going to reveal my glory, he says. I'm going to reveal it by being lifted up. Then it becomes clear. But what he means by being lifted up is not held high on a throne. It's being lifted up to die. Lifted up on the cross where he was scorned and spat at and reviled and tortured and killed. And Jesus did that to reveal his glory, to reveal the glory of God. How does that reveal God's glory? How does that reveal Jesus' glory? It reveals his glory because it reveals a God, Father and Son, who looked on us, us who had sinned, us who had rebelled against God, us who had turned away from God, and us who deserved only to be punished, 
and, and uh, uh, who looked on us and said, but they can't bear the punishment that I must dole out. So here's what I'll do. I'll pay myself. In that way I will stay absolutely just. I cannot compromise my justice, says God. But I will give mercy to all of those people. Because the penalty is paid by me in the person of my Son, Jesus Christ, dying on the cross. The glory of Jesus, the glory of God, is revealed supremely in the death of Jesus on the cross. You want to see the glory of God? Well, you'll see a little bit in thunderstorms. You'll see a little bit in beautiful skies. You'll see a little bit in uh, Jesus turning water into wine and Jesus raising dead people to life. But you'll see all of it when the God who created the whole universe was prepared to come and suffer and die as a man for you. I can tell you those facts. But I can't make that glorious in your heart. I can't make you see. And those truths may be totally new to you. Well, let me say, they are the most important thing in the whole universe. They are the most important thing for you to understand and appropriate, appropriate. And I want to say to you, as, as Peter says in his epistle, that we would do well to pay attention to such things until the light dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts. Do not give up until you've not only uh, appropriated those facts and understood what Christianity stands for, but actually sought God and pled with God until such time as he shines his light into your hearts and you see the glory of Christ, which is the glory of God, and have realised that that is the most important thing that you could ever know, ever experience, It may be that this is not particularly new to you. Maybe you've heard people expound this again and again and again, maybe for many years. And it was useful in so far as it explained the mechanics of how God might forgive people. But it never really captured your heart. Well, let me say, you're not yet a Christian. It's not, it's not a matter of just understanding. It's not a matter of just knowing there. 
It's a matter of it capturing your heart so that you know this is the most important thing for me in all my life in all eternity I've seen Jesus and he's now the centre of my universe I don't mean perfection I don't mean being perfectly devoted to Jesus I don't mean that if the cloud has passed over the sun at some point, somehow that casts doubt on all experience that you have ever had. It is a struggle to see Jesus in that way. It is a struggle to know him and sometimes darkness does come for a season. But the light has to have dawned. We have to have begun to see that Son, which is the glory of God in the face of Christ. We are here to see the glory of Christ, which is the glory of God. We formulated it in, in our, our summary statement of why we are here. We are here. God, we believe God has brought us here to delight in him. Delight not without a tinge of awe and fear, but fundamentally to delight, to see that he is the most precious thing we could ever know. Everything that we do, now and in the future, revolves therefore around that central truth. And yesterday in our day away, which was really a useful time, we started to unpack that and unfold that for ourselves as to what that meant in different aspects of our life together. But because not uh, many people heard, my, or only a small proportion of us heard what I was saying at the end of July, I thought it was worth just repeating that central thing and seeing how it's both in the New Testament as well as uh, we saw a couple of months ago in the Old Testament. To get that clear in our hearts, we are here to delight in God. We are here to see the glory of Christ, which is the glory of God. one sense there is absolutely nothing we can do to make that happen. God created the universe alone and God will create new life in your heart alone without anyone's help. But in another sense he invites us to be involved in that wonderful project in our lives and in the lives of others that we may touch. I want you to see everything that we do as being part of that project in which God uses us for that great glorious purpose. One of the key things that we are wanting to develop at a very practical level is just our Sunday mornings, the conduct of our Sunday mornings and to make them more useful to him. And uh, uh, music is developing. There is, there, we're trying to make the setup better. If you're not involved in uh, setup, there are lots of people I saw 
who aren't part of that rota. Be a lovely thing um, uh, if you wanted to volunteer. Have a word with word with me and just join a rota so that you can be part, even in that small way, of making our gathering times here run smoothly and seamlessly so that our hearts can be drawn up to God and we can see more of Christ. But it's our great vision as well that people should go out from here on a Sunday to display the glory of Jesus because he's touched our hearts now. So we will now be different people as we work, as we live at home, as we um, uh, make friends. Everything comes from that one central truth. God calls us to see him, to delight in him. He shines the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ.